0: is the Gamers with Glasses show. Uh, We're doing a special interview today with Shane Denson on his new book, Discorrelated Images. Um, Shane Denson is an associate professor of film and media studies at Stanford University. He's also, in addition to his new book, uh, Discorrelated Images, he is also the author of Post-Naturalism, Frankenstein Film, and the Anthropotechnical Interface. Um, Hi, Shane. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me here. Really excited yeah. to talk to you Should be fun. Um, so I'm managing editor Roger Whitson and with me uh, to do the interview uh, is Christian Haynes, the other managing editor of Gamers with Glasses. Hey, folks. Okay, so should we get started? Like, I just wanted to maybe start with this question of uh, how you got into studying film, video games, and digital media, Shane.
1: Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it seems like a, a simple question, but it's actually one that I ask myself sometimes. Um, it, I don't know, it wasn't like a natural progression. Um, I was a, um, I studied philosophy as an undergraduate and I was studying kind of analytical philosophy, mostly epistemology, philosophy of science. And uh, that doesn't really have much to do with video games or with digital media necessarily. Um, but I also, I don't know, I kind of started looking into the continental um, tradition of philosophy, phenomenology, existentialism, that sort of stuff, um, and that, I don't know, one thing led to another, and I ended up moving to Europe, and I ended up spending 15 years in Germany for whatever reason, and, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it has to do with personal things too, but I ended up doing right. my my master's and my, uh, my doctorate there, and I met my <laughs> wife, and Yeah, one thing led to another, as these things do. But while I was there, I was again studying philosophy. And um, I don't know, I was uh, kind of thinking about where this was going. And of course, you know, I mean, academic uh, trajectories are difficult everywhere around the globe. Um, And philosophy, I think, is more um, difficult than some in terms of thinking about job Uh, perspectives and things like that Um, but one thing led to another and I ended up writing a thesis on um, bioethics and um, romanticism and it ended up leading to Frankenstein and the whole question of human technological relations that are uh, bound up in this you know this novel from 1818 that still kind of haunts us all. And that led me to thinking about Frankenstein films and the way that this this thematic has been treated over the course of, uh, well, 200 years. If we count not just novels, but also theater, um, comics, and then the whole long tradition of Frankenstein films that goes back to 1910, at least. That's the first known Frankenstein film from Thomas Edison. Um, And then, of course, the more well-known ones from the 1930s with uh, Boris Karloff and on and on and on up to the present day where there are still Frankenstein films made. They're generally bad, uh, but the thematics that are treated in Frankenstein, I think, well, obviously have some bearing on a lot of other science fiction um, media, not just film, but you know, you can think of everything from Blade Runner to uh, Ex Machina to Her to you name it. I mean, it's like everywhere now, right? So I yeah. guess I guess that's kind of what happened is that this initial interest in um, in theory of knowledge and philosophy of science blended into a a kind of interest in the philosophy of technology, which made me think about well what are the technologies that mediate our experience today? So that's that's basically it, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's such an interesting, so like Frankenstein's such a such a central uh central story in that, right? Like there's these questions, these huge questions about what what makes life and what does it mean to die and what does it mean to to try to reanimate people. <laughs> right. um, what drew you to that novel or to that, to that, to those movies in particular?
1: That's a good question. Um, again, seems like it should be something that would be easy to answer, but I think, again, it's a kind of convoluted story. Um, I mean, I grew up watching these Frankenstein movies and Dracula and the invisible man, um, on like Saturday matinee, uh, on, on the TV. And, um, that was something that, you know, I was always fascinated by these, these monsters, um, in particular, and there's, there's a kind of fascination and abhorrence, you know, I mean, it's both horrific and, um, attractive, this idea of the, this other that challenges what the human is. Um, and I guess as I started thinking more philosophically and more, um, I don't know, maybe more precisely, hopefully, um, about this question of the human. Um, It became clear that, you know, we have to think about this historically. We have to think about the changing conditions of both what it means to to be a human, to be um, this kind of agent that is embodied in this certain way, that experiences time and space in certain ways that are variable and that can be modulated both for good and bad. Um, that can be extended and can be uh, attenuated. Um, And these are, of course, deeply political questions that are also enmeshed in these questions of what are the technologies um, with which we conduct our lives? You know, uh, I I take it that technology is something that is uh, inseparable from human life. Um, But that is not to say that any form of technology is essential. Right. So um, for me, that all of these questions about the monstrous, about the human um, are also questions about, um, you know, how do we live without an essence in a way?
2: And that brings us, I think, pretty nicely to discorrelated images, uh, not only as a book, but also as a term. And as a term that's trying to capture, I guess I would say, a specific uh, moment in the relationship between humans, and technology, the way in which digital technology in particular has come to mediate, to really structure so much of our lives from the way in which we're, you know, we experience phantom phone vibrations, because we're always already sort of attuned to the digital call, to, you know, somebody contacting us digitally, to, you know, a number of other ways in which our perceptions kind of being rewired. And I think I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you came to that term, specifically discorrelated images and what it means for you and why that's the term you landed on in a book that goes a lot of different places. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, So discorrelation, I mean, part of it is a um, part of it is a reference to a a philosophical tradition of phenomenology, um, which has this central idea of, of this intentional relation between the subject and the object. And Edmund Husserl uh, describes this relation as an uh, essential correlation between the subject and the object. It's not separable. The subject is never separable from the object in this way of thinking. Um, and I, I, I agree with that. Um, I don't think that discorrelation as a kind of uh, media phenomenon challenges this basic fun, you know, philosophical idea. But what I guess what I'm trying to bring out with this term, uh discorrelated images, is that the kind of um perceptual relations that perceiving subjects have and had with media, especially with image media, whether moving or still image, um, you know, the there was a kind of way that images were both produced and, and perceived and presented themselves that was kind of tuned to human uh perceptual capacities. You know, the fact um, that we see uh within a, a kind of uh defined spectrum of, of color and intensity and things like that, and here likewise. Um and you know, these of course are not universal. There are um both you know, individual as well as collective differences that, that change what those correlations might be between perceiving subjects and, and groups of subjects and the image objects or other media objects that they might be able to perceive. But what I'm arguing is that outside of that that realm of variability, of the correlation, the, the you know, the, the relation, and well, correlation, because it's a, a two-way relation, uh, between subjects and objects um, outside of that that realm of variability when we get to the you know the realm of of digital media then there's a kind of fundamental challenge to that correlation right there's something happening outside of the perceptible image which is essential to the perceptible image in a way that i think well you can i i don't know uh it might sound like I'm trying to make a kind of radical and fundamental break between the analog and the digital. And I'm not really trying to do that, but I do think that we have to take account, um, you know, take into account the fact that there is this realm that is fundamentally invisible, that is, that is absolutely necessary to the visible forms or otherwise perceptible forms of digital media. And that, is kind of the opening to thinking about discorrelation, the fact that something is no longer correlated uh, with our senses. But that has, of course, effects on what our senses are in this world.
2: Right, and there's, it seems like there's at least two levels there, and I'm sure there's more, but there's that sort of basic machinic level, you know, where, you know, I I think of, for example, uh, you know, recently Microsoft with their Xbox line and. Sony with their PlayStation line competing to see whose new console is going to have the most teraflops, you know, which in a certain sense is a kind of like meaningless term that just has to do with how many trillions of, you know, processing uh, sort of cycles happen in a given second. Uh, But it does speak to like the like race for GPU power for graphical power and the way in which that's structured not only video games, but as you point out, like cinema As well. And then on the other hand, there's also, you know, what somebody like Richard Kittler will call the protected mode, which is, you know, that way in which it's not just that these things happen invisibly, it's that actually, there are these large corporate entities who are invested in making sure that we never actually see how the process works, whether it's like a proprietary algorithm, right, where you're never going to quite know how Google search engine works, because it pays for them not to have, you know, um, or any number of other examples and certainly that's the case in games where you know now we see for example uh forget who i think it's warner brothers owns the company that did the middle earth games like shadow and mortar and stuff and they have the nemesis system and the nemesis system was patented and so everybody's sort of like not quite sure to what degree they can use something like that um
1: yeah no totally I, i think you're pointing also to the fact that you know this this um sort of calculated invisibility is a deeply political question at the same time that it's a deeply aesthetic one right it has a bearing on what is aesthetically available for us in terms of what we can perceive or act upon in the world but it you know it's a it's a question of engineering the sensory in a way right
2: Yeah, absolutely and you know i like that calculated invisibility right because it you know, raises a lot of questions about, okay, how are we going to access that? How are we going to analyze that? Like as scholars, but also just as people that have to live in a world surrounded by various kinds of platforms that dictate what we get to see and how we get to see it. Right, yeah. totally.
0: It also reminds me quite a bit of Nicholas Mirzoff's work on, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and The Plantation, where he talks about how um, a lot of modern life is about engineered who can, engineering who can see what, Right. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of, um, you know, Black Lives Matter being about um, sort of bringing bringing a face and a voice to people who m- might otherwise be invisible. Right. And yeah. the, the soul, the sort of thing he always brings up is like the police using that phrase, move on. There's nothing to see here right. as, a, as a sort of political element in that.
1: Yeah, totally. No, I think that that's. Um that's right and that's germane to this uh conversation right because that that realm of the invisible and the reason why i was pointing to the kind of um relation between the political and the aesthetic here is because um the way that i try to think about this is that this this realm you know of of discorrelation of of the invisible infrastructures they're not just like or it's not quite Adequate to say that they are just technical um, realities of the world, right? They have a bearing not only on our perception and our senses, but on the embodied like infrastructure of those senses. Right. So I, I think about I think a lot these days about um the work you know coming out of especially Black feminism about embodiment and about the flesh. I'm thinking about like Hortense Spiller's distinction between the body and the flesh. Also thinking about Sylvia Winter's problematization of of the human again, you know, and and so really I think that um, though it doesn't really happen that much in this book, I tried to kind of lay the foundations for thinking further about that political question of you know what are the stakes of these transformations, and I think that they they have a direct bearing on questions of racialization of of gender both gender identity, identity and sort of impositions of, of gender identities, things like that, right? Because these, for me, are questions of um, sort of the pre-personal flesh, both as an individual and a collective uh, kind of um, layer of reality. And so, yeah, I, I, I hope that that those connections might be able to be made from some of the work that I do in this book
2: really interesting. So on the one hand, we have this like really kind of dense philosophical layer where it's, you know, we're talking about in a certain sense, not just consciousness, but these things that happen to our bodies even before to the side of consciousness, right? The way in which our bodies themselves are being reconfigured by the technologies we use and by the things that underlie the obvious parts of those technologies, right? Um, And then on the other hand, we also have you know, a term like post-cinema, which I want i want to have you tease out a little bit, you know, which I think for you is really useful as an object to analyze and get at these things with. And, you know, when I hear post-cinema, I mean, maybe it's sort of funny. One of the things that comes to mind uh, in recent times, though, it's only sort of germane is, you know, Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit against Disney, oh, right? Yeah. Which is about right about how Black Widow was released simultaneously to streaming and to theaters. And at first, all, I was like, I don't know if that's actually related, but it seems part of this greater anxiety about the so-called death of film. And right. of course, maybe for an audience that might not have heard some of the debates uh, by folks like you and Steve Shaviro and others, uh, and uh, you might hear post-cinema and think that oh is this like just meaning we're not going to have fancy films anymore we're just going to have movies maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what the stakes of a term like that are like why why that term
1: yeah no it's interesting that you uh that you bring up that scarlett johansson um lawsuit um because i was i was joking like last year i mean you know these desperate jokes that we all made about our situation of being in lockdown and everything and i was I made a joke on Twitter, you know, after everything shut down, I was like, folks, I, I didn't mean it literally, you know, post-cinema, right? It's not the end for me. So, yeah, but but the the concept, it does pick up on these earlier debates, right? These, these fears, these anxieties, like especially in the 1990s um, about the so-called death of cinema, you know, is do digital images uh, spell the end of cinema? And a lot of the debates were about the relation between the image and the world, right? So if cinema embodied a kind of indexical relation, the photographic image was caused by the thing in the world that couldn't so clearly be said about the digital image because of the intercession of all this processing that takes place in between snapping the shutter and, and getting the image on the screen not to mention all the processing that's that's involved in reproducing it on your screen every time so you know that 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 indexical re- relation seemed to be challenged and that was the basis for some people to say well then cinema as we knew it as it was celebrated by the great theorists bazan and people like that you know that kind of medium is dead and then other people you know took it to mean other things that Somehow, the cinema as we knew it, maybe in its classical form, in terms of continuity editing, or in terms of whatever, that it was challenged in this fundamental way. I, I don't see it that way. I, when I use the term post-cinema, it's not about the death of cinema, and it's emphatically not about making a kind of radical break. But it is about recognizing the fact that digital media, computational processes do in fact do something new and they they fundamentally call into um, question a lot of the things that we took for granted about moving image media Um, so i am picking up mostly i guess most directly on steve shaviro's use of the term post-cinema he's got this um, really great book from i think 2010 or 2011 uh, called post-cinematic affect Um, where he's thinking about the technological changes, but trying to move past these earlier debates about, you know, indexicality and post-indexicality and whatnot, and really connecting it to questions of our affective and therefore, again, these kind of pre-personal, pre-perceptual relations that we have with images and also connecting it up with the larger questions of, you know, the political economy of, of these, um, Media industries and and technologies infrastructures that we are enmeshed in, you know, that that we don't just sort of um, deal with punctually the way you might have gone to a movie in the past, um, but that surround us, you know. I mean, we they're inescapable, right? So I think uh, Shaviro makes a good point that um, you know he's also not trying to say this is brand new. In fact there's a, there's a long sort of um, period of transformation that you can trace back at least to television, you know, television starting well earlier, but on a wide scale in the 1950s, really just breaking up both uh, the images themselves into scan lines, but also what it means to perceive a, a a movie, right. Um, It might be punctuated with commercials and things like that. So inserted into larger, again, economies, as well as uh, perceptual relations. So, you know, but still, I think there was, you could go to the movies, and there was something uh, recognizable as cinematic. And I don't think anybody's claiming that there isn't today, uh, although it does seem to be challenged by our pandemic experience. But it seems like enough changes happened over long enough uh, periods of time that we do need to recognize that though there are continuities, there is something new as well.
0: That's, that's really interesting. So I think I, I, and I, I think I'm not alone in this. I think I have a very complicated relationship to a lot of these changes in the sense that like, I'm, I'm just remembering you sort of speaking about these um these, these film scholars uh, talking about the end of cinema and cinema is dead. And like, that they have a kind of personal relationship, or would like to imagine that they do, uh, with these films. That there's a kind of um, kind of mourning or grief going on uh, with with the end of of going to the movie theater or or, or whatever. Um, and I, it's it's it sort of reminded me of a weird conversation I had right before I gave I uh, did my dissertation defense with my with my advisor Richard Burt he was really into blu-ray he was just like really into it and i was asking i was like I, I probably won't get a blu-ray player i think i'm just gonna wait this is like 2008 i think I'm just going to everything streams like why would i get a blu-ray player and he was like no blu-ray you get all of the director's commentary you get all of the you know all of these extras why would you wait for streaming it's not that great at all you know and so it's just interesting that you are Engaging with this whole idea of kind of a shift in perception, maybe that we're having as a species, or maybe that we're having in terms of our relationship to the world, um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that uh, and its significance to your work.
1: Yeah. So, so I I hear you kind of gesturing between the personal and and the impersonal here, um, and you know I I also have a very complicated. Uh, relationship to these technologies i mean of course my work depends on it right so i need <laughs> for things to change to keep talking but on the other hand you know i mean um i guess one of the things that i'm really trying to be um cognizant of and, and careful about in the book but in my in my work more generally is um how how difficult it is to gauge our own personal, um, or individual subjective whatever relations to these environments, right? And I and I try to situate um, these media changes as environmental ones, and I and I mean it in a you know, in a in a real sense. They are the environments within which we live. I mean, uh, Mark Hansen makes this point in a in a really interesting article on media theory where he says media are the environment for life. He doesn't even say human life. He says for life, which is a really strong claim. And I, I'm i not really sure um, if we can go that far. I think that we can, depending on what we mean by media. But um, in any case, as far as human life is concerned, I think we have to uh, take that claim seriously, which means that media are never in you know, the... Um, effective control of an individual or even of a species, right? Um, Because there is a kind of complex feedback loop that's involved there. I mean, that seems to get us pretty far away from the question of Blu-rays and streaming. But when you think about it, um, it doesn't. (laughs) Because what I'm I'm saying is, you know, there are these infrastructures that are involved in producing these images, whether they're the extremely High resolution images of Blu-rays, or the maybe not always so high resolution images of streaming. And those infrastructures are precisely about a kind of temporal control, right? They're about um, not just the spatial image that we um, that we focus on when we're actually interested in watching a movie, say but they're about regulating the speed of, of information, the flow and the processing of information. And I, I at least think that what's at stake there is precisely the, the flow of time as it um, you know, provides the basis for, for consciousness as well. I'm not saying that the choice between a Blu-ray and streaming is a choice about mind control or anything like that. But I am saying that these temporal choices which are hard-coded into the infrastructures of media today are um, directly imbricated with the kind of embodied processing of time that, um, uh, well, upon which our, our consciousness depends. And so our subjectivity, again, is really inseparable from those infrastructures in that, that deep way, which I can never like see, and I can never put my finger on it. And I have to talk kind of philosophically in order to get us there. But, you know, I I think that it's a very material relation and an environmental one, right? I mean, I think wonder.
0: Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: No, Roger, you go ahead.
0: I was just wondering uh, the other image that I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, or, or narrative or anecdote. It's just my relationship to Spotify, which I still have. I still have Spotify. When I first got Spotify, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Um, and I would have all of these playlists and it was great to have any song I wanted anytime. And then I got really annoyed with it and I, I started collecting records. And like I think you could just say that that's nostalgia, but I feel like there's something else going on in terms of my own comfort with these technologies where like I go back and forth between them. Right. Like I, I definitely still listen to Spotify, but then like, I really want to listen to, and I, 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 it's like I latch on to the album as something that mm-hmm. will give me that feeling of music that I seem to not have anymore or something like that. It's, right. it's interesting.
1: No, I totally agree with you. Um, again, this is taking us to that problematic relation between the subjective and, and these broader conditions of subjectivity right and for me I I try to locate those in embodiment and I think that you know holding an album um, and kind of you know having this material relation with the media object it does change things you know because I also I have like you know Apple music or whatever and um, I'll I'll put I'll search for something that you know I want to listen to but when I listen to like new music on there, I don't ever really develop that kind of deep personal relation. At least I, I don't feel like I am. Maybe years down the road, I'll I'll look back nostalgically on, you know, these, these days of Apple Music or whatever, the way that we can also look back not only on records, but even like cassettes, you know, there's been a resurgence of cassettes. And I can understand that, you know, and I think it has to do with the fact that so much of our media environment is so discorrelated again, right? It's, it's out of our control. It's um, you know, it's a matter of algorithmic recommendation uh, processes and, and systems. Um, And it, it feels impersonal. It feels disembodied, you know, and that's something that I think a lot of uh, people have spoken to in different ways. You know, on the one hand, I do think that like, you know, discourses around cinephilia are also trying to get back to some kind of uh, embodied relation of, you know, the experience, um, both as a psychic and a a material experience of being in the cinema and really thinking about those images deeply. Um, But other people as well have registered uh, these changes, this kind of lack of orientation that I think we feel sometimes, or the orientation seems to come from these impersonal systems like Netflix's recommendation system or Spotify or Apple Music, as opposed to you know going to the record store and having someone recommend it to you and carrying that physical object home and physically putting the needle on the record. I mean, there's there's so much happening there that is not just about, but it's easy to understand why that would be related to the question of whether these analog sounds are superior to the digital ones or not. And I think, you know, I, am not going to try to answer that question. I mean, there's some really interesting work in sound studies about that, but for me, it really comes down to that, that relation of, um, or that embodied relation to the object as opposed to these impersonal systems.
2: And I think one of the important things there, uh, Shane, and that I think Roger sort of was bringing up implicitly as well is a lot of this is about the practices that we develop for these things. And the, the technologies themselves don't necessarily dictate those practices in a one to one fashion, even if they suggest certain ways we can use things while maybe prohibiting others or prescribing others. You know, so I think of, you know, when we think about like, the resurgence of vinyl records right now it's not going back to a place but developing a new place in response to some present frustrations with the way in which music is being streamed to us right in a way in which uh you know spotify and other kind of streaming platforms don't necessarily lend themselves to listening to an album let's say right, right? uh they lend themselves to cutting across albums um and the same thing you could say with the mp3 and i think i like jonathan sternfeld's work on the mp3 Mm -hmm. format more generally um and you know bringing up these practices you know one of the things that i really appreciated in your book and this is one of my favorite terms uh was this notion of the crazy camera uh and the way in which that term can cut across different media including both uh digital games or video games uh as well as a lot of big blockbuster movies or kind of block Buster television, is it were. I'm thinking of mm-hmm. your discussion of Lost, towards the beginning of the book, uh, the discussion of Transformers movies, uh, the discussion of, I believe it's in the same chapter, I'm trying to remember, uh, Nira Tamata and uh Los Trier's melancholia. Mm-hmm. Uh right. and so the way in which part of what happens with post cinema is a kind of different practice of the camera where you're seeing things that you couldn't possibly necessarily see with. A uh, camera in a traditional sense, and yet it's going to produce the effect of camera ness. Yeah. Right? In video games, I actually think if you're if you're a regular game player, you're sort of used to this intuitively. Especially if you're somebody that plays like three D platforms. Like I just right. finished Psychonauts Two, and like a lot of three D platformers, where you're jumping around in the three D environment you know, half the gameplay is about how good the camera is, right? If the camera is going to follow you well, how much you have to use the camera, uh, you know, to what degree you're going to like find hidden areas by manipulating the camera.
0: So there's, there's actually just as an aside, there's actually a joke in the dark souls community that like the hardest boss is the camera. <laughs>
2: <So>. <laughs> which make which makes total sense. Uh, and, I, and I won't go down to FromSoft, uh rabbit hole with you roger uh we can save that for the regular <laughs> podcast episodes
1: um i'll have to get my daughter to talk talk to you about that stuff i <laughs> uh I never yeah. made it that far
2: <laughs> i understand that uh but yeah so this notion of like camera practices right yeah. both the camera as a literal object but also the camera as an algorithm or the camera as uh, digital entity that is controlled through programming i wonder if you could speak a little bit about that and uh that's from crazy camera and why you talk about the transformers movies and sort of these blockbuster
1: yeah. movies yeah no absolutely so i mean first of all i i really like what you're saying about um you know the way that practices um well that they're rarely about going back or something you know so i mean like nostalgia may motivate a kind of uh action a new practice but what happens after that is something new right Uh, which doesn't mean that it's divorced from the past it just means that everything's new all the time right so um yeah about the the crazy cameras i mean um this is something that I was, I was picking up on this term from Therese Grisham. Um, it came up in a conversation that we had um, whew, almost 10 years ago, probably, uh, where we were talking about 3D and about uh, the questions of orientation in 3D space. We were thinking about 3D cinema. You know, It was back when uh, there was this wave, this wave of, of new 3D movies following Avatar and all of that which, you know, seemed like, um, well, it was never really clear. Was this just going to be a fad or was this going to be the new thing? It turns out it was pretty much a fad, though I guess they're still being made. I, I don't know. I haven't seen one in a couple of years. Um, but in any case, you know, this this question of the crazy camera, it became a way of thinking about disorientation right? Or reorientation in some ways, but reorientations that from the perspective of, let's say, classical Hollywood style and continuity editing, the way that, you know, movies were edited um, in this high time of like, say, the 1920s through the 60s or something, where everything was, according to the logic of the system, very rational and allowed the viewer to understand spatial orientation in a way that was made to feel natural, but of course was always normative. It always had its own implied uh, form of, of perception and embodiment as well. I mean, you might argue that it was able-bodied as well. But in any case, um, what we see not only with 3D cinema, but with you know this fast action, let's say of Michael Bay and Transformers, where um, you have all these violations of those rules that Hollywood had established for itself. And that, you know, not just Hollywood, but global cinema in many ways, uh, if not followed, then at least understood to be a kind of normative guideline and chose to break with it in avant-garde practices or whatever. So Michael Bay, of course, is not breaking with it in an avant-garde way, although some people claim that he is actually an avant-garde filmmaker, um, which I like to think that way sometimes because it makes these these movies, um, well, interesting, I guess, in a way that they're not always super interesting if you take them at face value, um, at least not on a narrative level. Optically, I think they're doing all kinds of really fascinating things. And what they're doing, most importantly for me, is they're really challenging um, your spatial orientation as a viewer. You know, so they they are filled with jump cuts and they cross the 180 degree line, so that according to Hollywood and you know classical Hollywood style, um, the viewer would have been disoriented and not known where they were. That doesn't really seem to be true. I mean, when you ask. Um, students these days you know whether they can follow the action in transformers they're like yeah what's the big deal you know i mean you're just fixated on these rules if you're you know whatever approaching it from the perspective of classical hollywood they're not necessarily disoriented but they're not following it in the same way i guess right because there is a kind of orientation but you have to let yourself be taken on this kind of uh, roller coaster ride i guess but not only that, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm interested in those Transformers movies is because of that central spectacle of the transformation, which is always accomplished by CGI, right? So you've got these um, these robots that are effecting these transformations from say cars into robots and vice versa or whatever other machine it might be. And really when you try to focus on what's happening, you know you you can't see it you just can't even it's it's faster than your perception could ever be right and that seems to be the the point of it is that this kind of computational image is categorically faster than human perception right there's you know in the the slogan of the transformers from the 80s there's more than meets the eye right and i mean it's it's like you know overly literal and corny and and cheesy but there's something really uh, wonderful about that. And I'm not saying there's something wonderful about those movies <laughs> as a whole. I mean, they're, you know, military propaganda in some ways. And of course, they're incredibly sexist and, um, you know, whatever. They're, they're all kinds of bad. Um, but that central uh, visual object, let's say, um, which exceeds being an object, you know, because we can't ever quite perceive it. I think that that points to this kind of irrationality of the camera as something that can no longer be confined to an optical device, right? It's a it's a hybrid optical computational um, image generator, right? And, and that's one of the things that I argue later on in the book is that, you know, we can't even confine our our conception of the camera to um, physical lens-based devices anymore, we have to think about our screens as cameras because they're as much image generators today as the uh, cameras in our iPhones or the video cameras that are used to produce these movies.
2: I think that's one of the sort of really interesting parts about your book. And just kind of the tricky part about the work that you're doing you know, that I think you just kind of brought out really nicely with the Transformer slogan that more than meets the eye, Um, which is that on the one hand, the things that you're talking about are deeply technical, below the surface, easy to overlook, uh, and taken for granted, right? Like Mm -hmm. nobody needs to think about the fact that Netflix, Hulu, and other streaming platforms have very much changed the way we watch television, for example. They've changed the way in which we inhabit our own houses, right? right? A screen can be anywhere because Netflix can be anywhere because you probably have five different digital devices that have the app on it. Um, You're no longer watching commercials in the same way, which means you're no longer moving around your house the same way, right? You're not getting up every 10 minutes to go to the bathroom because that's when the commercial is.
0: Just as a side note, it's interesting, you know. Thinking about this in terms of like fight scenes, like because I think they do a little bit of this in fight scenes, especially like war movies where it's supposed to be so much greater and bigger than anything you can conceive. And uh, I'm just remembering now. I'm going back to old movies and trying to watch them and looking Mm -hmm. at the fighting in the old movies, and I'm like, those look fake. Like, so I know that these things have already changed my brain. (laughs) I know that they've already done that to me.
2: Absolutely. That's the thing is, right, is they, they've they changed our brains, for lack of a better way of putting it, and they've changed our habits, they've changed our practices, and so we have to find ways to kind of get a handle on them, right? And I think, you know, the crazy camera is one way, because one of the things is like things like lens flare, little bits and pieces that stick out and that, you know, kind of introduce the kind of friction that you then pick up on and analyze and think about. And, you know, you get to the end of the book, and of course, you end the book with, well, The end, apocalypse, (laughs) extinction, right? It's a good logical place to end, right? But I I want us to maybe talk about why you end at the end, right? Why you end with the apocalypse, why you end with extinction, how we get from A and B, where A and B are discorrelated image in post-cinema, all the way to Z, which is human extinction, melancholia, and because we're nominally at least a video game podcast uh near automata which I also just Mm -hmm. admit is one of my favorite games in which we did a spoiler cast of a couple of months
1: ago or so um on the same podcast so yeah yeah no yeah it's a um right i mean you know the scope is is big right and i guess on the one hand you could you know a skeptical account would be like, come on, what does Hulu and Netflix have to do with the end of the world? But I mean, you know, actually a lot, right? If you think about it, um, if you think about the, again, to go back to like recommendation systems, you know, they're about a kind of temporal control of the future of the future. You who is supposed to be interested in whatever Netflix is going to recommend to you next, which is based on your past behavior Right, which is then statistically sort of uh, decomposed and mixed into a large group of other people's viewing behavior, which then gets repackaged in terms of you know statistical correlations to decide um, what they're going to recommend to you, which can then of course change uh, what you like and therefore who you are, right? But like you also said, you know. Um, Netflix and Hulu and, and things like this, they're about changing your, your physical behavior, the spatial parameters of, of how you occupy your your home or whatever space you, you you're in, right? And if you think about all the other technologies that are about controlling the space, so again, you know, on the one hand, we have the temporal dimension about uh, predicting things. And on the other hand, the spatial dimension of mapping things, right? And of of mapping ever more space. You can think of Google Maps, but you can think also of like, uh, you know, those those robots, uh, those vacuum cleaner robots that people buy that map the indoor space of their home. And that apparently, at least some of them communicate back to the parent company and uh, provide a map of your house, right? So what I'm saying is that Hulu, Netflix, things like that are inseparable from these larger systems of temporal and spatial control, which seem to be putting us onto a kind of death spiral, right, um, where everything is about, you know, maximizing control. Um, you know, I mean, people, there's a lot of people who have written about these things from different perspectives. I think McKinsey Wark is really great on these questions Uh, especially her book uh, Capital is Dead. I think it's just a fascinating book about uh, a shift from a kind of uh, accumulation of capital to the accumulation of vectors of control, data-based vectors of control. And, you know, um, Netflix and Hulu are the ones that we take for granted and invite into our houses and, uh, you know, say, here, all right, let's, let's, you know, let's renegotiate time and space, right? So when we get to the the final chapter, and it's about the end of the world, I mean, in one way, that's a, a very speculative trajectory that takes us from today's control technologies to this kind of monolithic end of the world apocalypse type, type stuff. But on the other hand, what I'm arguing is that the, the site of extinction is really just... Um, you know, an allegorical way for thinking about uh, the way that everything is more than meets the eye, right? That, That media now are about that space where there is no perception and can be no perception, or where perception has been calculated in advance, but the perceiver becomes optional in these at least more apocalyptic scenarios. So I think when you know, one of the questions that I have is why does post-cinema, why do digital movies, digital media keep coming back to this this, um, apocalyptic scenario? And, you know, I mean, there's just no end to the number of movies about the end of the world. Um, I was uh, thinking about it the other day. I was, I started watching uh, this Marvel series, Loki. um, And, you know, it's, it's about an an impending apocalypse where the timeline is out of control and whatever, and then uh, Loki is following some other ver- version of himself, this trickster god, right, and finds out that that this other version of himself has figured out that he can kind of uh, exploit the system by inhabiting apocalypses, because nothing will change in those apocalyptic scenarios that would uh, raise attention and uh, you know throw the timeline off and attract uh, the people searching for him to find him whatever but i guess what i'm saying is or what i'm arguing in the book for sure is that the apocalypse has become a way of meditating i guess on this um this really anxiety- inducing idea that, the human perceiver has become optional in today's media circuits. I don't actually believe that. I mean, I believe that there is this apocalyptic trajectory which could take us somewhere approximating that, but I don't think that the the embodied viewer is ever optional today. And so for me, really coming to terms with the way that that apocalyptic scenario has become this locus for, you know, thinking about post-cinematic mediation, is a way of thinking about the necessity of the embodied perceiver again. And it's really trying to open up that gap where there is no seamless trajectory that takes us from Hulu to the end of the world. And it's about, you know, finding those spaces in between where really embodiment is necessary and where perceiving human subjects are necessary and hopefully should be necessary in the future. And so there is a kind of, um, both a political challenge to the trajectory that's being mapped out today by the corporations that you know are all around my house here in Stanford um and um as well as a, a kind of call to rethink the necessity of the human as a political agency and as an agency of collectivity so that's so i'm not trying to celebrate this this end of the world that is being celebrated in some ways and Mourned in other ways by um, many of these media objects, but really to come to terms with what it means to take seriously the connection between our media today and that possible future. And like you said, near autom- near automata is a is a great um, meditation on that. Which you know I don't want to spoil it. I guess well, you said you spoiled it before. So, um, but you know it has this existential dimension where, in the ultimate end right, which is never really ultimate, I guess. But in that final end, let's say, um, you are called to sacrifice your save data in order to help some anonymous other person on the network to to fight the final boss, which is the end credits of the game, right? And so there is this kind of um, really ethical dimension of that game, which is about extinction, um where you have to sacrifice your own stored experience in order to collectively help this anonymous um like future generation i mean you can think about it in terms of you know what we're what we're up against now like really materially ecologically with the climate crisis i'm not saying that those are you know the same like playing a game and and fighting climate change but you know, there is a real existential ethical dimension that has this political dimension to it that I think is is absolutely uh, crucial in terms of uh, mediating our transition into whatever future we might have.
2: I think that's a great place to wrap up and end. Uh, thanks so much for being with us, uh, Shane, and discussing your really great book and again folks that's discorrelated images and you can find that with duke university press uh so yeah i definitely highly recommend it to folks and shane thanks
1: again cool thanks for having me
0: thanks a lot shane this was really great
1: yeah it's been fun